Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. Hello, and welcome to this edition of CODA's Real World Talk. My name is Nick Ritter, and today we'll talk about the concept of value-based care in oncology, the role of real-world data in helping providers shift to value-based care, and how cancer centers and their shift to VBC have been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I'm joined by Barry Russo, the Chief Executive Officer of the Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders based in Fort Worth, Texas, to give his perspective on VBC and oncology and the impact of COVID-19. Barry, thank you for taking the time to join us and welcome to CODA's Real World Talk. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate being here. I look forward to the discussion. Just to get us started, could you give us your take and you know explain to us what value-based care is? Sure. So value-based care, we've actually been involved as a practice in value-based care or in some component of value-based care since 2009. We were one of the first practices in the United Healthcare Episode Fee Program. We were one of the practices in the Come Home Program, which was a Medicare pilot. We are one of the practices and one of the first practices in the Aetna Medical Home Program. We're in the Humana Medical Home Program. And of course, we're an OCM practice as well with CMS. So we've been working on this concept of value-based care for a long time. And what value-based care is, it's evolved. It's been an evolution for us in understanding what it is. But as it's evolved, it's really evolved into the understanding of the total cost and concept of care associated with our cancer patients. So our historical focus prior to value-based care being cure the cancer and focus on the oncologic component. Value-based care really pushes us to look at the person as a whole, as the overall care process as a whole, and subsequently the total cost of care for a cancer patient, whether that's the hospital part, the emergency room part, the oncologic part, their visit to the pulmonologist, their cardiologist, how we coordinate all that care and organize all those pieces really is value-based care. It's a much more focus on the full component of care that the patient's going through the whole oncologic journey. That's great. And thank you for giving us those examples. Uh, You talked a little bit about how you're getting involved in value-based care. We know value-based care is this concept increasingly used in cancer care, partially driven by the high price points and oftentimes limited outcomes data, particularly in novel therapeutics. Can you give us some more on how your practice is preparing? It takes a while. Let me tell you, it's a lot of preparation. A lot of it is infrastructure related, meaning that you, one, you've got to have data and you have to understand how to process data. You've got to have access to data. Two, you've got to have an understanding of triage and case management of your cancer patients. So one of the things we had to do in the very beginning was centralized triage for all of our clinics. We have nine clinic sites, centralized triage for all those clinics so that we could manage the overall symptom management and toxicities of patients in a centralized point with people whose only function all day long was managing toxicities. Historically, in many practices, triage is done by nurses that are in the chemo room and either a nurse is assigned for the day or the week or whoever answers the phone and they've got a million other things going on they're busy with and triage is the last thing on their mind or symptom management and typically a lot of those answers are go to the emergency room or call 
pills back later and take a couple of pills and see how things go. We figured out early in the process that is not going to be successful in managing symptoms and toxicity and keeping people out of the emergency room. So we centralized that. We actually centralized the whole phone system to our practice in order to ensure that given the different value-based arrangements we were on, that all the calls that came into practice could be routed appropriately, whether that's to triage or to a physician or to wherever it needed to be. In addition, we engaged our own case management team and our case management team are nurses that are RNOCNs that are making outgoing calls to patients based on their potential risk of having a higher risk of having toxicities or having emergency room visits or costs. And we use a risk assessment tool to make that determination. That's another infrastructure piece we had to put in place. Clinical pathways. We had to get into clinical pathways. We've been on a pathway system now since 2008. And that is an essential piece of standardizing your approach to care. And so data, triage, case management, risk assessment tools, clinical pathways, navigators for patient education. And what we're really focused on right now is electronic communication with patients and simplifying electronic communications with patients. What's become apparent to us in this value-based world is that whether or not you're a high-risk, if you're a high-risk patient, we're going to be talking to you frequently and trying to work on as managing as much as possible as we can toxicities, symptoms, and other issues you may arise. But if you're not a high-risk patient, we still need to be talking to you every week. We just can't physically do that over the phone, but we have to have a better way to communicate to patients electronically. We should be touching base. Where are you? How are things going? Because even those folks who may not have been high-risk can flip to high-risk in a very short period of time. So our biggest infrastructure focus right now is how do we communicate to patients electronically? How do we remotely monitor what's happening with patients electronically? And then how do we have an effective response back to them electronically? So those are just some sort of infrastructure pieces we have been working on and preparing for in value-based care. That's great. And I can imagine, you know, a lot of time and attention and investment up front goes into making those infrastructure changes. What are the benefits of making this change of pursuing value-based care for all stakeholders involved, you know, the patients, payers and providers? The interesting thing about it, and before I get to that, one little thing I left off on from the standpoint of infrastructure is education internally. We have to do that continuously and have from the very beginning, super important. From the standpoint of benefits, I really believe we take better care of patients. We're more focused on all the pieces of the journey of the patient. We're trying to make sure that we can have touch points all along the journey and we're more integrated and our communication lines are open more with the other specialists involved. So one of the things that we, as an example, that we found early on that we had a lot of patients that were going in the emergency room with shortness of breath, many of those are lung cancer patients, but many of them were patients with other types of cancer, but were COPD patients. That's been their chronic condition. As using some of the data, we could go back and look to see, are they being followed by a pulmonologist? Only 30% of all of those that were COPD patients were actually being followed by pulmonologists. That's a coordination of care issue that one, if we could fix it, be better for the patient, and two, it's gonna lower costs, we're gonna keep people out of the emergency room. So we actually met with the pulmonologist, worked on a process to expedite 
appointments for our patients because in our market, getting a, an appointment with a pulmonologist is a six-week process. We had to expedite that. And so we met with the pulmonologist, talked about this process, got them to agree, and we've been blessed that they were working with us, got them to agree on an expedited process for our patients so that now any patients that we have that have COPD, we can ensure they get into a pulmonologist, start being followed, and manage any exacerbations that may happen in a much more timely and cost-effective manner. We've done the same thing with cardiologists because that's another big piece of what oncology patients have, of getting connected to the cardiologist and expediting appointment structures with the cardiologist. Super helpful, so much better care because we're coordinating care better, we're getting things turned around for patients faster, and we're understanding that's an important component of their overall oncologic journey. That's great. And that's a great example too. Thank you, Barry. And can you give some thought to, or some, I guess, challenges and the road to VPC that you've seen yourself? Yes, a lot of challenges. One, data. We can't get enough data and it's never timely enough, right? Because if we're going to manage patients, we have to know, we can't keep track of everything going on without information and data. We can't look at trends. We can't identify opportunities without really good data. And it isn't just our data, it's claims data from the payer. And that claims data needs to be timely so we have an opportunity to make changes on problems and trends that we're seeing. So the biggest problem we have with our OCM relationship or our program is that the data is quite old before we see it from the claims data. So by the time we actually can get our hands on the data, we've lost the opportunity to potentially turn around things for those specific patients. Clearly, we can helps us understand things going forward and we can adjust things, but we've lost some opportunities. So biggest challenge, data, understanding it, getting it, and it being timely. And I think the second biggest challenge is a value-based care model requires that although the patient is at the center of the care and that the physician is clearly the person who drives the care process, but in value-based arrangement, it takes a village. It takes a whole lot of other people supporting that process, dietitians and social workers and genetic counselors and palliative care specialists and chaplains and in our practice, acupuncturists and massage therapists and integrative medicine specialists and physical therapy and prehab and all of those pieces. And so one of the biggest challenges is just that's a whole different care model than the traditional physician-driven model. One of the biggest challenges is just connecting that whole village to the care process and ensuring the communication between the members of the village, of the care village and the care team is open and functions and that all patients get access to all of the support services or members of the village necessary. Hugely challenging and because it's a completely different care model than what the old traditional care model has been. And so I can imagine that other providers that may be listening to this, some of them might be getting involved in VBC to the extent that you are, some of them maybe not quite as much. For those providers that haven't yet kind of fully taken that leap into value-based care, making these investments in infrastructure, what could you tell them are really the benefits for a practice like yours getting into that early on right now? 
is sort of our contention that on a long-term basis, value-based care, it is going to be the standard. That's what we're hearing from all payers. That's what we're hearing from the federal government, that this whole approach of looking at the total cost of care and being responsible for the total cost of care and sort of being that oncology medical home, that once a patient is our oncology patient, we are their medical home and we are the place that drives all the decisions going on with them, even those that are not oncologic related specifically, but ultimately have an impact on oncology. And so understanding that role and educating your team, that's coming. That is the standard of care. That's the future. You step out there now so that you're as prepared as possible. The last thing I want to do for me in my practice is that all of a sudden the switch flips and we're all responsible for total costs of care. And I have no experience and no idea how to do this. We've spent the last 10 years learning, failing, and then succeeding and then failing and then succeeding and fine-tuning and evolving. And we learned a lot of lessons that people can learn from. So clearly no one going forward needs 10 years. But I think for all the practices, you need to understand the concepts. You need to start getting your team educated about it. And you need to reach out and start practicing and getting some of these concepts down, even if you just start pulling your village together because that are your care support team, because this is what's the future. And the last thing you want to be doing is trying to react to a switch that has been flipped. You ought to already be prepared and it should be and could be sort of second nature to you at that point. Yeah, that's a wonderful answer. And I think a great reason to get started earlier rather than later. So you talked a little bit about data, and I'm glad you did. So as we know, the use and application of real world data have become increasingly common and relevant, especially in oncology. Could you dive in a little bit more on the role of real world data in helping to move for a practice to move to value-based care? Yeah, what I'm really excited about with real world data is that it is actual outcomes. So rather than trying to make decisions that solely on package inserts or studies, and many of the therapies we use have been around a while, and so there haven't been recent studies and things on many of those pieces. And then there's a whole all new stuff that's coming out, but real-world data actually categorizes patients based on their clinical scenario and then groups them into outcomes. And understanding what your potential outcome is and when the physician is making therapy decision and having that outcome-based data so incredibly helpful in ensuring that you're making good decisions for the patients, but also cost-effective decisions long-term based on the information that you have. You know, one of the frustrations I have is that drug manufacturers don't look at total cost of care and the overall outcome of the patient. Clearly, they look at progression-free survival. Clearly, they look at remission and those kinds of outcomes. But in the scheme of over this person's life or over at least their oncologic journey, what is really the outcome of the patient and their quality of life and in how far they're disease-free, what are the complications that therapy has generated for them, and thus, what is the total cost of care of their oncologic journey? We're struggling to get any manufacturer to look at that kind of data and that kind of real-world outcome, and that's why I really like some of the things that CODA is doing because they're really focused on outcomes and looking at the overall oncologic journey, and we've struggled trying to get that information outside of the CODA and trying to get manufacturers to even consider that 
information as they are determining the efficacy of the therapy that they are either new therapy or their existing therapies that they're putting on the market. That's great. And so we know that other specialties have made this shift to value-based care, even outside oncology. What would you say makes oncology data different than other diseases or other specialties? Yeah, it's interesting. Let's use orthopedics as an example. There is a program called BPCI, which is a CMS-related program that is a bundled payment or a value-based payment for hip replacements, knee replacements, and those kinds of things. And the interesting thing about that is that, for the most part, when you do a knee replacement or a hip replacement or an orthopedic procedure, there's a beginning and an end. And that's not always the case. In fact, many times not the case in oncology. Clearly, there's a beginning, but in many times there's not an end for a long time. And we have some patients that are in therapy for decades, right, or more. And so it's much more complex and involves so many other physiological systems. It is unclear in many cases when the end or if there is an end or when that will be and what the episode actually looks like. In many specialties, it's easy enough to understand the episode, when it began and when it ended. In oncology, it's not so easy. And in many cases, as I mentioned, it it can go on for a long time and can involve so many other specialists that you have to pull into the process because of what's happening with the patient. You know, as an example, in our OCM model we're currently in, long-term breast patients who are on uh, hormonal therapy on a long-term basis are considered in the program. You know, they may be on hormonal therapy for five, six, seven years, who knows how much longer. And during that time, many of them have many other things that go on. They fall, they break their hips, they have knee replacements, they have all kinds of other things, they have cardiac issues, all kinds of other things. The way that the program is laid out, we have total cost of care responsibility for those things. And so the level of complexity of understanding the long-term nature and is there a beginning, is there an end, when is all of that, makes oncology so much more complicated than many of the specialties out there. So true. And I can only imagine for even if you are able to kind of put the guardrails on for evaluating a bundle or some kind of care, even for patients that have gone into remission, it's not necessarily over. Is that right? Right. No, you're exactly right. It's not over. And, you know, we're following patients for years and years and years. And then there's the recurrence issue and then there's diet issues while you're in your sort of remission period because, you know, obesity is increases the likelihood of recurrence of disease significantly. There are other cardiovascular issues that may generate because of therapy. It's a long, long, complicated process. And it's not as, no disease is simple, but some do have a fair market beginning and end, and it's a finite period, it is really hard to define that in oncology. Right. So we're going to talk about, you know, recently how the pandemic has had an impact on that. But before we get into that, so as you may know, more than 85,000 new cases of the COVID-19 virus were reported across the U.S. last Friday, shattering an early earlier single-day record and stirring new fears about the months ahead. Before we get into those details, can you just tell me a little bit about how the virus has impacted cancer care at your institution? Not just mine, but everyone's, I'm sure. And it's just a whole new world. I don't even know. It's hard to even begin to start at any starting place because it's had significant impact. First, you know, as COA put out some data in the last week or so about the volume of screenings and how much that has decreased 
colonoscopies and mammographies and some of them as much as 60% and that has not bounced back. And when you stop having people screening, then you start catching, you stop catching early disease and you start a process where by the time the person really is sick, and they get to you, they're in late stage disease. We're seeing more of that. We're also seeing, you know, just delays in people wanting to come get therapy because they're afraid to leave the house or afraid to come to a healthcare institution. And I'll be honest with you from the standpoint of, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but we're one of the safest places. And that's what we really work hard to be, one of the safest places to come to for our cancer patients. But the biggest impact is we're not seeing as much early stage disease because the patients are not getting to their screenings. If the outcome of COVID, which as you know, in 99% of whatever the right percentage is of people who, who get COVID are just, you know, have the flu and or have cold-like symptoms, some of them completely asymptomatic. If the outcome for the biggest chunk of the population is that they miss their screenings or they refuse to get them or are afraid to do it and end up with late-stage cancer, I cannot tell you how bad that is. So much worse in many cases than the disease itself. And that's one of the things we're really worried about as we look into 2021. And what kind of things have you done to potentially address those fears to try and motivate anyone who needs to undergo early screening to come in? Sure. No, I appreciate that. So first of all, as most clinics have, we have instituted this whole sort of screening process at the front door. You don't even get in the door if you got any COVID symptoms, have a fever or any of those things. And we are automating that. So we have what we call sort of thermal technology. And when you walk in, one, the computer that you're facing has facial recognition and recognizes you and will know we're loading our patients now. So it's going to be, it takes a little time. But the system will know whether you're a patient or not and whether you should be here or not. Secondly, the system will tell you whether you have a fever and stop you if you do. And thirdly, the system will tell you, ask you the COVID questions and you'll respond to that. So all that is non-touch. So the idea is that when you get to the front door, you know, Historically, we've always had two people out there just screening people all day long. Well, now we've added all this expense to the process, not only that, but we're exposing more people to each other, right? So the idea is have a non-touch process for check-in that ensures that one, you belong here, and two, you don't have any COVID-related symptoms and you don't have a fever. Thirdly, that system will ultimately check you in to the institution through facial recognition. Well, and you talked a little bit about some of the new tech you're using at your center. And we've heard from other providers how they are obviously implementing a lot of virtual visits. Can you talk a little bit about all the technologies that you've adapted or had to bring in order to respond to COVID-19? So the thermal technology is one we talked about. And the second thing we've done is we've installed UV filtration systems in all of our waiting areas and infusion areas and anywhere that we have congregation of patients or people. We don't have the ability in the cancer center to keep people six feet apart at every waiting point. So we want to make sure that if we're going to have people that are in any way, shape, or form close to each other, that the air around them is clean and filtered. And so what a UV filtration system does is basically pull the air in, run it through UV lights. UV lights actually, if a specific type of UV lights, actually kills the virus. 
and bacteria and then pushes the air back out so that the air around you is being cleaned constantly. Important when you're sitting in a waiting area and important when you're sitting in an infusion area. So we're still rolling those out because believe it or not, they're on back order, but we've got most of our waiting areas and all of our infusion areas have that filtration system going. Really cool technology. Never would have crossed my mind. That's something we had to worry about, but clearly it makes sense in any healthcare institution. In addition, we've done a lot of telemedicine, obviously. We've backed off on, we still have it. And in fact, we're working on implementing it right into our electronic medical record where literally you could be in the electronic medical record, the physician can and hit a button and out it goes to the patient and a telemedicine visit structure. So changing some technology in our EMR to try and accommodate that. But we've done a lot of telemedicine. We backed off a little bit because we want to get people into the center because for cancer patients, we want to make sure that we're seeing them, we're laying hands on them, we can get a better sense of how they're doing more so than you can get on a camera or in many cases our patients don't have cameras so we're doing more of an audio approach. Our providers really feel like we're not able to get as clear a picture of what's going on with the patient without sort of seeing them and laying hands on them. So we're backed off a little bit of the telemedicine. We still have it available. We are still doing it, especially for patients that are traveling distances or don't feel well and don't want to come to the cancer center. And well, we don't necessarily want them here if they have COVID symptoms or those kinds of things. So it gives us a great option to reach out to them. And then finally, we are in the throes of what I call patient electronic communication system, meaning how we connect to the patient electronically on an ongoing basis, not necessarily for their exam or visit, but just on an ongoing basis. It's clear to us, especially in a COVID world, we've got to stay connected more often so we can catch problems earlier, help patients get to, if they need testing, if they need COVID testing, if they need anything, we can identify it earlier before it becomes an acute problem. That's great. And that UV filtration is fascinating. I don't think I'll fly in a plane until they implement one of those here in the plane. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think some of the planes actually may have that. I don't know, but I didn't even know anything about it. I'm, you know, I'm just a simple guy here in Fort Worth, Texas. I didn't know anything about a UV. I thought UV lights were used to, you know, for parties. I didn't even have any idea that it was actually something that killed bacteria and virus and cleaned the air around you. It's pretty amazing, actually. That's great. That's great. So of these technologies, which ones of these do you see lasting and, you know, well into a post-COVID environment? You know, one of the things we've learned is that let's use the thermal technology as one. We really should be taking everybody's temp when they come into a cancer center. Because even when COVID and we all have a vaccine and COVID's gone away and we're living in a different world, if a person walks in the door with a temp, we ought to know it because they may have the flu, they may have other things, and we need sort of a better response before they get into clinic. I also love the whole facial recognition thing that the thermal technology does and check patients in. And is this somebody that we know should be in the cancer center or is it a new patient and therefore we'll get them loaded? But I really love that sort of thermal technology and that front end check on, do you have a temp, anything going on, let us know and let's facial recognition you to make sure you're where you belong. The UV filtration system, we're going to put that everywhere we have more than a couple people in a standard way as much as we possibly can. It's a super cool idea. Makes people feel so comfortable that the air around them is being purified and virus removed. And like I said, our goal was to make this for patients the safest place they can come to, or it is a safe place. 
cancer center should be where you feel safe and where you feel hope. And those two pieces, technology. The third thing, clearly we're going to continue to use telemedicine, I hope, forward as much as necessary for the patient. But more importantly, this whole patient electronic communication system of touching base with the patient in an electronic way once a week or more, depending on their clinical scenario, and just ensuring that we're staying connected. I cannot tell you how excited we are about getting that up and running. That's great. And I can imagine for patients that may be immunocompromised, this is a benefit to them regardless of there being a pandemic. But no, most definitely. Most definitely. And to be honest with you, it's our patient. We ought to be touching base periodically. That We're their medical home during their whole oncology journey. And so we ought to be touching base with them more frequently. We just never have historically had the ability to do that electronically as much as what's developed out of COVID. There are a lot of bad things about COVID, but the good things about COVID are the identification that we need to communicate more electronically, that there are ways to touch base with patients that's easier for the patient. You know, people like to pick up their phone, open an app, get a text. They don't want to talk to anybody anymore. Nobody wants to talk to anybody anymore. So get a text, open an app, boom. And someone has actually followed up with me and touched base with me. It's part of the value-based environment. It's part of the post-COVID world. And I think something that will ultimately be make our oncology care better. And to that, Barry, for value-based care, what does this mean? What is COVID-19's impact on your shift and another provider's shift to really, truly having a value-based care system? Yeah, I'm a little worried about it, to be honest with you, because again, if COVID it pushes the situation of patients having much later stage disease, they're going to be more complicated, more symptoms, more toxicities, more hospitalizations, more ER utilization, not related to COVID because we'll have a vaccine and then we'll move on, but related to late stage cancer because the screenings didn't happen because people didn't step out. I can only encourage people, get your colonoscopy. I mean, everybody, all these healthcare providers, they're well prepared for COVID now. We've all got experience with it. In the beginning, we didn't know what we we're doing, but now we're all got some experience with it. Everything is very safe. Get your screenings done so that you're not in 2021 worrying about late stage cancer because at some point we won't be worrying as much about COVID-19 and you want to be able to stop worrying about anything as opposed to late stage cancer. If I can encourage anybody, it would be get your colonoscopy, have your prostate check, get your mammogram, you know, clearly your gynecologic exam, get the things done that are general screenings because it could save your life in a post-COVID world. That's great. Well, Barry, I really appreciate the time and it was a pleasure talking with you and best of luck in your transition to VBC and also during the pandemic. Thanks, Nick. I sure appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real-world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.